Out of the Fourth Place, Chapter 11, Holistic Worship. I went to college at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. As a freshman, I didn't know what to expect and was pretty nervous as I entered my new world for the next four years. That fall, a senior invited me to a retreat on the ocean with a campus ministry called Lighthouse. I went, and it quite literally changed my life forever. I had never seen anything like that community before. The way they love God and each other, I had found a new home. Before college, I didn't have many honest friendships. Through Lighthouse, I got connected to a small group of six other freshman guys who could talk about anything. We studied the Bible and asked big questions about God and life late into the night. We supported each other as we tried our best to figure out the opposite sex. We served the homeless together in the greater city of Tacoma. I didn't realize it at the time, but in college, I experienced a taste of an integrated church. We were a spiritual family on mission together. We were deeply dedicated to our campus, and not just the basement where 150 or so of us gathered every week. We lived on campus. We ate there. We played frisbee golf there. We made ridiculous movies there. The University of Puget Sound is one of the most liberal universities in the country, yet we lived right in the middle of the very challenging environment as followers of Jesus in exile. The campus was our mini-city, and we sought its peace together. As we did, we saw the hand of God at work. We saw lives change. Drunken frat boys became lovers of God. Porn addicts experienced true freedom from their addictions. Women full of shame from the past abuse or rape gained a new identity and confidence as children of God. Rich suburban kids grew to love the inner city of Tacoma. Through all of this, a question lingered. Is this just a college ministry thing, or could a community live like this in the real world? We took up the challenge. A group of us, guys and girls, continued to meet together after graduation. We weren't going to be like those adults who lose their passion for life and God through isolation and consumerism. We were going to live differently. More people joined our community. We picked a theme verse for our mission having to do with salt. We were going to keep each other salty, able to make an impact on our world of new careers and families. We jokingly called our little group NACL, NACL, the molecular symbol for salt. Yes, our group contained more than its fair share of science geeks. Somehow, the name stuck. Eventually, inspired by some mentors of ours and some books we were reading together, thank you John Lewis and Randy Frezzi, we felt compelled to move into a neighborhood together where we would not only keep each other salty in our separate lives, but also experience shared life and purpose among our neighbors. We wanted to stick together, so we found careers that could keep us local. I worked at Russell Investments, headquartered in Tacoma. Ben taught high school science and coached cross-country. Pam worked for REACH, an organization dedicated to the HIV and AIDS community. Jason went off to Stanford for his MBA and returned to work as an executive for DaVita, a leader in kidney dialysis. Spanning the worlds of for-profit, non-profit, education, and more, our neighborhood community made us more like Jesus in our workplaces. We met weekly in the neighborhood for a meal and Bible study. More than that, we shared all of life. Spontaneity was the norm. People randomly showed up in our backyard to jump on our trampoline or just hang out. We encouraged each other's marriages and parenting. We saw firsthand the benefit of our kids growing up with a whole network of friends and adults they could trust. One of the kids has charge syndrome and is unable to hear and speak, yet she has a whole group of kids using sign language with her. 
Community was not always easy. Conflicts came up and needed to be resolved. There were differences of opinion that needed to be discussed. That's how it should be. That is how families work. Through this experience, I got to taste what it means to live as an integrated church, a spiritual family on mission together. What we experienced in college on campus, we experienced in the bigger city of Tacoma. And we saw fruit in our own lives, in our kids, in my middle school neighbor whose dad walked out on him. We started by just playing catch in the backyard. Eventually, he went off to college to become a youth pastor. We saw God working in his sister who was cutting her arms with razor blades. One night, we got to take her out to buy her first Bible in celebration of her finding hope in Christ. We even saw God working in the teachers that came to our group and cried with us as they thanked us for investing in their school with them. We sought God's peace in our neighborhood, and we saw God's peace come. Today, the community is still going strong, still investing in each other, still making an impact on the neighborhood. I miss it terribly. Nine years ago, sensing God's leading, my family and I headed to Colorado and Denver Seminary. I wanted to better understand why most Christians never taste what it's like to be part of a spiritual family. I wanted to study how a biblical ecclesiology can and should inform how we practice church. What I studied there, along with many other conversations, books, and experiences, helped form what you are reading. I hope it has been a meaningful journey for you. We have walked through the Garden of Eden, past the Old Testament temple, into the life of Christ, through 4th century Rome, and finally to the modern Western church. We have looked at the forms of place, people, and practices as they have developed historically and how our history still impacts us today. We have begun to build the framework of an integrated church, one whose form matches its function. In this, the last chapter, we now arrive at our final medium, practices. I save this one for last because it follows naturally from the other two. In other words, unless you also integrate place and people, it is very difficult to integrate practices. The basic principle of an integrated church regarding practices is this. The church worships as we live, connected to God in all spheres of life. Our community in Tacoma experienced a taste of holistic worship. Unfortunately, the current model of fourth-place church has made holistic worship unattainable for many believers. Instead of living sacrificially for one another, we are using a paradigm of church that puts all the sacrifice, our time, talents, and resources into the fourth place. How do we change this? How do we let go of our physical temple attachment and give ourselves instead to the living temple within culture? Once again, our starting point is the issue. In order to see lasting change to the way we approach Christian practices, we must address our foundation. We must rebuild the temple on a foundation of people rather than religious events. We must come out of the fourth place and return the church to where it belongs. Again, this chart is helpful for understanding both the problem and the solution. Note to the audio listener, again, we have our four-quadrant chart. And in the upper left, our thing, our place, there's the church and a person uh, looking like they're holding their arms in worship. Uh, so signifying that that's our place where we do our thing, we go to worship God. But there's an arrow pointing down to the lower right, the their thing, their place. And there's people outside the coffee shop and the workplaces and the homes uh, gardening. And so they're just living life. Uh, in their thing, their place. Since we're talking about worship, I added a little worshiping person in the our thing, our place. This is what many people think of when they hear the word worship. Standing and praising God is a beautiful thing. 
but it is only a small part of the worship Jesus came to give us. Their thing, their place, is where people eat, sleep, work, and live. It is the only quadrant that would have existed if not for Eden's fall. So I added some happy gardening people. As Tim Keller suggests, all meaningful work, whether medicine, construction, the arts, or teaching, ultimately points back to the cultivation of God's original materials. In other words, all of us are at some level gardeners. All of us are still called to steward God's good but tainted creation. Rehearsing for the Wrong Eternity I have often heard it argued that since we will be worshiping God forever and ever, why not practice now by running great worship services? Worship is a rehearsal for eternity, they say. While many people express this sentiment with a great heart, there is a problem with the logic. Here is the issue. Most of our churches have been rehearsing for a fourth-place view of eternity. Our event-focused rehearsal assumes that heaven is an eternal worship service. While Revelation has some beautiful images of worship in song around the throne, as N.T. Wright argues, that is not a picture of our eternal state. Rather, the biblical picture of eternity is one of a new creation. We see a new heaven and a new earth. We see the nations from all over the new earth bringing their cultural treasures to a great city. We see new trees of life. We see people coming and going in and out of the city whose gates will never be shut. We don't see any description of an eternal worship service. Instead, we see a garden city. This is not an escape from our humanity, but a humanity 2.0. This is not a retirement in the clouds, but a promotion to even more responsibility. Producing cultural treasures implies meaningful work. Building things implies that there will be craftsmanship and art. Moving things around implies transportation. If Jesus said he eagerly awaits celebrating with bread and wine in the coming kingdom, there must be the farming of wheat and the cultivation of grapevines. As Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven suggests, if there is great production, why shouldn't there be coffee bean production? Okay, I'm from Seattle and I'm counting on eternity to include great coffee. The new heaven and the new earth are a place for us to finally understand what it means to be human. When heaven and earth are at last married, we will finally get to see our original purpose on the earth fulfilled, to steward God's good creation. We practice for heaven not through endless worship services, but by living holistic kingdom lives now. God has given us a garden. It is full of weeds, but it has potential, and we are the gardeners. The Cutting Edge of Worship People are always wondering what the next movement in worship is going to be. In the 1980s, many churches pushed toward contemporary worship. They added electric guitars and drums. They started raising their hands and dancing. In the 1990s, they moved toward bigger production with smoke machines, expensive lighting, video, stage design, and TV production. In the 2000s, they pushed satellite campuses and online churches. Other churches, some as a reaction to the megachurch show, have moved toward church forms that feel more ancient. There is a push for more liturgy more smells and bells. With this pattern, what is the next big thing in worship? DJ-led worship or hip-hop worship, another art medium, more liturgy? What if we are just as confused about worship as the woman at the well? What if, like this woman, we are still asking questions about temple worship while Jesus is trying to open our minds and hearts to a whole new paradigm of life in the Spirit? What if the next movement of worship isn't another fourth-place fad? What if it is a movement toward real-life, holistic worship? What if it is a movement towards lives of radical mercy in community? 
worship in exile. Worship looks different in exile than in a temple. We aren't called to maintain a building anymore. We are called to be a living building, cultivating God's garden. For the Ufuzi Missional Order in Santa Barbara, worship isn't about singing songs. It's about collaborating with 17 other organizations in order to effectively feed hundreds of friends without homes in Pershing Park. It's about working with the city council to effect change in the sex trade. For Josh and Lucia in Madrid, worship is about providing art classes to impoverished kids. It is looking after another elderly person with cancer. It is listening carefully and patiently to one another to discern each other's gifts and how God might want to use them. For our Knackle community in Tacoma, the city was our garden. Our careers were given in worship to God. Our work at the local neighborhood elementary school was our sacrifice. Our participation in the all-neighborhood garage sale was an annual liturgy. Every time we walked to each other's homes to gather, it was a sacred procession. Our meals together were communion. Our prayers were the natural outflow of a community that loved each other. It didn't matter how beautiful our songs were. Kids and adults sang along together, praising God for his goodness that we got to experience in community. We had an annual retreat where all our families would get away to the mountains and rent one huge house. We would share meals, play all day, jump in the river, play games at night, and come to God together around a campfire. One day, the men would watch all of the kids so the women would get some girl time. The next day, the women would watch the kids and the men would go do something stupid together where one of us would always get injured. I broke my friend John's nose once playing some ridiculous version of football that guys our age should never play. Was community always wonderful? Of course not. Sometimes it was pretty messy and frustrating, but it was real. Worship was holistic. All three spheres of relationships were at once being redeemed and formed by our God. We walked together to encourage each other toward a deepening love of God. We worked hard to build supportive relationships with each other. We processed together our own gifts and callings so that we could maximize each other's contributions to the world. We experienced communion with God, community with each other, and mission and work in the world. Worship and life were one. An immersion experience. Do you want to experience church like this? I know I do. Our world needs to see a church that can walk humbly in community with each other, a church that practices mercy and uses its resources to love its neighbors, a church where the world can tell we are Christians by our love for one another. How do we move away from a focus on maintaining a building and a shift toward cultivating the garden God has called us to steward? We're going to get really practical in this next section. But first, I want to offer a challenge concerning our paradigm of growth. For many of us, discipleship is so attached to the building that we have a hard time imagining anything other than sermons and classes. To stretch our imaginations, I want you to consider a different growth paradigm, immersion. Consider the example of language learning. We all know that the best way to learn a language is immersion within that culture. We can take two years of classes in Spanish and not learn as much as spending a month or two in Spain or Mexico. Immersion is a far better teacher than a series of classroom lectures. This is also true in most other areas of growth, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the crowds the parable of the sower. A farmer went out and cast seeds in different types of soil. One type of soil produced a lot of growth and therefore a lot of fruit. One hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was planted. The crowds were confused. 
The disciples were confused. Jesus pulled his disciples away from the crowds and then explained it to them in private. He told them that the secrets of the kingdom had been given to them, the disciples, but to the crowds he was speaking in parables. Why in the world would Jesus intentionally use confusing language with the crowds? Why not just speak clearly? This passage always bothered me until I understood the power of immersion growth. What if the secrets of the kingdom were something like suffering, love, mercy, or service? There are some things that you can't learn in a crowd who shows up for a little while and then goes home. The secrets of the kingdom are for the people who join Jesus in his kingdom immersion experience. It's not that Jesus didn't want to tell them. It's that he knew that if he told them, they wouldn't learn. Many of the most important areas of growth are caught more than taught. Jesus used parables to draw people into an immersion experience. He taught humility once the disciples started fighting over who was the best. He taught persevering prayer when they kept falling asleep. He taught service with a towel around his waist. He taught love through a cross. We often have growth backwards. We tell people to sit still and listen to sermons. We somehow hope that showing up once a week will translate into life transformation. We are as mistaken as Jesus' crowds, thinking that they could get the secrets of the kingdom without following Jesus. Our misdirected growth model leads to frustrated pastors and immature attendees. I want to show you an alternative model built on a better foundation. Six Dynamics Communitas has a framework for cultivating church planning movements that involves six key dynamics. These six verbs describe the natural process for activating sustainable missional church from the ground up. Rather than creating contrived environments for lecture-based growth, these dynamics allow growth to happen where it is most natural, an immersion experience in Christ-centered community. Number one, embed. Number two, initiate. Three, practice. Four, mature. Five, hub. And six, extend. The dynamics are ordered in a natural progression from one to six. However, the process is more fluid and cyclical than simple steps. For example, a church is never done embedding and initiating. The other dynamics simply build upon a culture of continual embedding and initiating. And so it goes with the rest. The six dynamics work to promote integration of place, people, and practices because they allow church to both start in culture and stay in culture. Number one, embed. The first dynamic is embedding. Whereas many church plants begin by starting a worship service and trying to attract people through marketing, Communitas begins by moving the team into the neighborhood. We discuss this process of incarnating within a culture in chapter 9 when we talked about integrated place. The excellent book, The New Parish, refers to this as faithful presence. This is a profound yet simple practice of living like Jesus in a community over a long haul and can never be replaced by cheap gimmicks or strategies. Here we exegete the culture, ask good questions, listen and discern what the good news of Jesus means specifically for this place and these people. Embedding implies learning to identify with the goodness and the pain of our setting, such that we become cultural insiders. When our NACO community wanted to impact Tacoma, we didn't start by parachuting into a random park and throwing a big attractional event. We started by purchasing homes in a neighborhood. As we moved in, renovated our houses together, and lived our normal lives, we slowly met neighbors, learned names, and began to understand both the strengths and brokenness of the neighborhood. 
The ministry to the Iranian immigrants mentioned in the previous chapter did not start out by posting an ad for Iranians to show up at a white expat American church planter event. No, it was much more costly than printing a mailer or a poster. It began when a refugee showed up in Glasgow in desperation. One of the church planter families, the Kurtkas, took him into their home for over a year. These church planters lived in a small duplex with one bathroom. They had three teenage kids at the time they took in the Iranian refugee. The Kurtkia family did not start with a costly event. They started with a costly sacrifice. They embedded themselves within culture and earned a deep trust. Number two, initiate. As you have embedded, you have absorbed your surroundings, built the beginnings of relationships, and looked for ways to both serve your neighbors and to allow your neighbors to serve you. During this process, your team begins to discern where and how you can most effectively demonstrate and proclaim the message of Jesus. Taking these active steps is what it means to initiate. The Kurtka family initiated a Friday night meal with some of the immigrant families once the opportunity presented itself. Not only did their live-in immigrant feel blessed, but he invited his friends to come participate in this weekly time of dining in a community. In our Colorado neighbor church, we didn't start by inviting random people to something called neighbor church. We started with relationships, coaching soccer, serving together, drinking beer. Once some friends in the neighborhood actually wanted to talk about spiritual things, we initiated a conversation. We met on a back deck with several couples to get a feel of whether or not they would like to take part in a regular spiritual discussion group. We also sought input as to what would make the group a safe environment for everyone to share honestly. The power of initiation happens when the people we are wanting to love come in contact with our faith community. As this intersection happens, evangelism and discipleship begin to take place naturally. When our NACL community invited several of our kids' teachers to one of our group dinners, they were not only touched by our question, how can we serve you and the school, they were touched by the real friendships they experienced in our community. What will initiating look like for you? A regular time to connect in a community garden? A morning walk once a week with a neighbor? A risky step now and then to share the essence of the gospel with a friend. We don't come in with a preconceived plan. We listen. We pray. When the time is right, we initiate. If you want some other great ideas for initiating, check out the book, The Art of Neighboring. Number three, practice. Practice refers to visibly living out our primary values and vision as a community. This includes our manner of prayer, service, working through conflict, and engaging with Scripture. Over time, we develop community rhythms that we ourselves find transformative, resisting the urge to simply adopt prepackaged discipleship programs. Practicing is an opportunity to experiment with how to live as good news to our particular context. It is where our being and our doing, our medium and our message, come into alignment. Maybe during the initiating phase, we start a regular time of service with our neighbors. Or maybe it was a spiritual discussion group in the pub. The most important thing here is not the event we create, but the Jesus way of life people experience as they come in contact with our community or team. This Jesus life is essential not only for helping others see and experience the gospel of the kingdom. 
It is also the critical lifeblood of the team and emerging church. Practicing cannot be overstated as it is the key to immersion growth. As people come in contact with a Christian community, they begin to catch on. They witness love, communion, service, encouragement, and they join in. They are discipled by a Jesus culture, not merely by words, sermons, or classes. Here, evangelism and discipleship are one. The great example of a community that has defined its life-giving practices is Michael Frost's church in Sydney, Australia. They use the acronym BELLS, B-E-L-L-S, to describe their regular rhythms of bless, generosity, eat, hospitality, listen, attentiveness to God's voice, learn, discovery, and sent, mission. New monastic communities like the Uffizi Missional Order practice a rule of life. Whereas most churches revolve around a schedule of regular events, integrated churches revolve around a shared way of life. Too often pastors try to lead people into a life that they and their staff are not experiencing for themselves. We may talk about our prayer life or our devotionals from the platform, but what people experience is our events. If people were to peek behind the curtain of our day-to-day life, they would often see an event planner's frantic office world, not the incarnational life of Christ. As a prayer mentor of mine, Daniel Henderson, once told me, if it isn't working for you, don't try to export it. Unfortunately, too often, our ministry professionals are trying to give away something they don't have. Practicing is the key to maintaining integration of people. Why? Because again, we are inviting people into our way of life, not our events. We are not separating people based on who is on stage and who isn't. We are creating a community of mutually broken people experiencing God's grace together. Leaders function more like life coaches and spiritual directors than event planners and orators. We are player coaches who come alongside people in the midst of their life as a soul friend. Literature on growing big churches is very unhelpful here. Instead, we rely on the wisdom of the missional church movement and spiritual formation movements. Authors such as Alan Hirsch, Michael Frost, Alan Roxborough, David Brenner, Howard Baker, Morris Dirks, and many others are helpful guides for changing our paradigm of leadership from the holy celebrity persona model to Jesus's life-on-life model. Number four, mature. Maturing is the process of developing over time as a unique expression of the body of Christ. At this phase, your communion with God, community with each other, and mission in the world increase in their level of organization and sustainability. Remember, an integrated church is not anti-institution. It is simply a different type of institution. A church must formalize processes as to how we select elders, form leaders, add members to the community, and empower people to use their gifts and service. Maturing has nothing to do with owning a building or hiring a full-time pastor. It has much more to do with being a committed spiritual family practicing faithful presence in the neighborhood. Once Upper Room Glasgow had a regular group of people who were part of the community, some regular rhythms around the community meal, and a growing number of people involved in leadership, they began to experience the fruit of maturing as a church. The work of maturing is never done, and there is no right model for a church on this quest toward maturity. All forms of Christ-centered community must continually be asking the question, what might we become when this present embryonic form of church grows into adulthood? Remember, the base unit of church is the spiritual family. 
In family, variety is the norm. We maintain unity in the body of Christ by keeping the gospel central, not by making cookie-cutter churches that all look and act the same. Some will be larger, some will be smaller, some families will gather in convention centers or concert venues, others will gather in homes or apartments. Some families will sing together, some will not. Some will pray in tongues, some will pray in silence. Some will practice a formal Eucharist, some will make the informal meal their time of communion. Maturing does not have one look or one liturgy or one theological soapbox. A church's maturing cannot be measured by event metrics, the quality of the website, or the hottest band. No, a maturing church is the one with the strongest relationships with God, each other, and the world, as well as the infrastructure to support those relationships. Number five, the hub. Hubbing means moving beyond a single church community to collaborating on a wider level with other churches and networks across a city or region. The express purpose of hubbing is both the health of the individual congregations as well as seeding new expressions of church. As people find community life valuable, they want to share it with others. This fuels the desire to see similar Christ-centered communities form. Hubbing is not always easy as it requires an intentional commitment by leadership teams to see beyond their own interests and exhibit a posture of seeking first the kingdom in their city. Regardless, it is essential for both health and growth. Networks of churches are able to offer training, teaching, and coaching opportunities that a single expression of church simply cannot maintain. Hubbing is also one of the keys to financial sustainability for networks of smaller churches, Again, the desire is not necessarily to pay for full-time pastors. Leaders can, of course, receive some support from their community, but the main goal is to support the network as a whole, including the apostolic leaders who act as the operational glue for the hub. While most individual communities will include people with gifts such as pastors, teachers, compassion, and hospitality, the hub opens the door for more gifts to be employed, especially those of apostles and prophets. These outward-focused gifts provide the catalyzing leadership needed to sustain new church expressions. Number six, extend. The final dynamic is extend. This is the same idea as hubbing, but it reaches beyond the local network to establish or tap into networks in new regions, cities, or even countries. This linking allows learning communities to be established across broader areas that not only inform churches in their practice, but also create opportunities to share resources and develop churches across diverse cultural populations in harder-to-reach areas. A growing movement. Communitas is not the only organization using these types of practices. Voices all over the world speak from a similar paradigm of ministry. Other movements use slightly different language, but many of the same principles overlap. Books like Missional Communities, The Tangible Kingdom, The New Parish, Building a Discipling Culture, and The Forgotten Ways offer great perspectives from other voices in the dialogue. Each has stories to share of kingdom movements throughout the world that operate from a fundamentally different foundation. In addition to these examples, I have recently come in contact with a church who call themselves Tampa Underground. Despite the name, they are quickly becoming more than just an underground movement. Tampa Underground is a rare church practicing the integration of all three forms, place, people, and practices. The Underground started as a group of 50 or so friends, mostly intervarsity workers, a parachurch ministry aimed at discipling college students. 
This group of friends shared a common concern for the church. They were successfully discipling students, but time after time, as their well-equipped and impassioned student leaders entered the local church, they only found frustration. These students wanted to make an impact for Christ on their cities. Instead, they found themselves listening to sermon after sermon and being treated just like another tithing unit. This grieved the university leaders at a deep level. Some of these university friends entered into a long season of prayer for the church, which included an extended trip to Manila, Philippines. There they observed church planning practices alongside leaders working in the slums of Manila. They came back with a revolutionary structure and a set of values for a new church that would enable them to finally empower their student leaders and others to make an impact on their city rather than sitting in pews. Tampa Underground is structured around what they call microchurches. They currently have over 200 MCs, microchurches, in their Tampa network, roughly 1,300 people. The smallest is a few people. The largest is over 150. If you have been asking questions regarding the scalability of integrated churches, this should answer your question. Every person in the network is a participant. Every person is a missionary. The underground, rather than being built around a central worship gathering, is designed as a nonprofit organization that offers a suite of services used to empower their people. When a person has a burden for anything, whether it is homelessness, the sex trade, their neighborhood, or poverty, Tampa Underground works to empower them. The underground staff assists in every step of the formation of a new microchurch. They have someone to help the new leader or team learn to budget, another person dedicated to their media presence, still another to coach and disciple them. They even offer tax help for some MCs pursuing nonprofit status. All of these services enable people to listen to God's voice, form spiritual family around a cause or need, and walk together in their mission. The underground doesn't own a central worship complex. Instead, they rent an urban industrial space that they call the hub. It is a co-working space that looks and runs like a business startup incubator. This allows MC leaders a place to office, host small to medium-sized gatherings, and prepare the infrastructure they need to launch more micro-churches. The leadership model is the exact inverse of most Western churches. Most churches utilize volunteers to run the program that the central staff create. Tampa Underground instead empowers people to run their own decentralized communities. The network contains a wide variety of microchurch focus areas. Writers, artists, prison inmates, human trafficking victims, African-American girls, and many more. It is messy. Many microchurches fail. Many lessons are learned the hard way. Staff walk with leaders through their ups and downs, but they do not micromanage them. They allow people to take risks and to fail, and often to succeed beyond their wildest imagination. In many ways, you can see the InterVarsity roots in the way they are structured. Tampa Underground is a very unique blend of what has traditionally been known as parachurch and local church. While most parachurch ministries do a great job structuring themselves for mission, they do not think of themselves as a church community. Tampa fills in this missing gap by creating a sense of community among its microchurches. Many microchurch leaders are also elders within the larger community, and many go through an additional ordination process. While microchurches each have a missional component to their existence, they also focus on communing with God and with each other. Tampa Underground is a beautiful picture of integration. They have integrated their place, 
Tampa, Florida, is blessed by the presence of over a thousand missionaries being salt and light to every part of society imaginable. Their footprint on the community is not an impressive building or costly event, but instead countless lives touched by Christ. They are truly doing church within culture. They have integrated their people. Their entire network is a community of mutual participation. Church is an all-play. Executive Director Brian Sanders speaks at large leadership summits that they run every year, but he is not a celebrity. The heroes are the people doing the work of the ministry in every dark corner of the city. If anything, Brian is famous for empowering others, not for drawing attention to himself. He takes no salary from the church. He fundraises everything he receives. In fact, the entire church budget is only around 800000 per year for a church of 1,300 people. Amazingly enough, they actually give away 60% of that budget towards special grants for their microchurches and international partners working with the poorest of society. Most of their budget comes from a once-a-year pledge from their community, not from worship service tithe money. Almost all of their staff are bivocational leaders. Finally, the network has integrated their practices. They do offer a weekly medium-sized gathering for people in their network, But this is not the main focus. It is also not connected to their financial model. It is only an optional gathering for people that want an extra teaching. Most of the staff focus goes towards the microchurches. Because of this, the underground is free from the mixed motives of the fee-for-service financial model. They don't need to set themselves up as the stars or keep anyone dependent on them for spiritual food. They are free to devote their lives to equipping the saints for the works of ministry. This blend of smaller size, life-on-life community, and missional focus allows participants to taste holistic worship together. I asked Jeremy Stevens, the associate director, about the sustainability of the underground. He said, Matt, that's the best part. The depth of the relationship that people have by living out their calling together in tight-knit community is something that hip branding and big salaries would never give us. People are sticking to the network because they are part of a family, not because of clever marketing. Their numbers are growing, and they aren't even trying to grow. More than 300 people came to Christ last year through their various microchurches. The word is getting out, and many people are now coming to the underground looking for help in starting their own networks. There are now 14 sister movements in seven different countries, including Germany, Ireland, and Haiti. The second largest network is in Manila, with more than 100 microchurches. Birmingham, Alabama has more than 40. Tampa Underground is practicing the six dynamics. They use some different language, but is the same foundation. They are a network of people, not church services. Their center of worship is wherever their people are, not an event in a building. They are deeply embedded in Tampa, Florida. They are initiating justice where God reveals a need. They are practicing faithful presence in their city. Many of their microchurches are mature expressions of church. Their network grows locally as they hub together and globally as they extend into new cities and countries. The Medium and the Message In the first chapter of this book, I opened with an illustration about the medium and the message. I said that most of our modern Western churches are using temple media, We are using forms that speak of separation, while the gospel speaks of radical integration. We are treating church as if it is a holy place where holy people do holy things. In Tampa, Florida, that is no longer the case. In Tampa, 
people are hearing the gospel, not just in word, but in the very structure of Tampa Underground. The medium and the message are one and the same, and the city is listening. The same is true of the Communitas churches scattered throughout the world. Madrid is hearing the gospel message loud and clear, as are Santa Barbara, Glasgow, and many other cities. The gospel speaks of God made flesh. That same God who sent Christ as a living temple into the mess of culture is still sending his church into his beautiful yet broken garden as the living temple. These churches are churches in exile, churches without their own place, worshiping God in every place. Like the woman at the well, they no longer need to go to a building to find their God. They have returned to the everywhere worship of Eden. If you've been wondering if the church you are dreaming of is possible, the answer is yes. It's not about one organization, one name, one perfect model. It's not about Tampa Underground or Communitas. It's about all of us. We don't have to keep doing what we've been doing. We can experience an integrated church for ourselves. Hope for the established church. I know that this is a stretch for many. I know it can feel overwhelming. If you are pastoring an existing congregation, you are not going to be able to just preach a few great new sermons and have your congregation get it. We are dealing with a different wineskin, and new wine often bursts old wineskins. Clearly, I have a strong bias. I am writing about the failure of our buildings and media to create the type of Christian culture of disciples that the world needs. Does that mean there is no possibility of your existing congregation getting a taste of holistic worship? Of course not. There are incremental steps you can take in order to move worship out of the fourth place and into reality. As we have discussed with our other media, there are three main directions to choose. Note to the audio listener, again, we have the four-quadrant chart. In the upper left is the Our Place, Our Thing. There's a church building, and then he has directional arrows A, B, and C going down for A, doing our thing in their place, across to the right for B, doing their thing in our place, and then diagonally down to the bottom right, C, their thing in their place. A, our thing in their place. If you are an existing church and you are not yet communicating to your congregation that what happens in the small group is just as much part of church as what happens at the building, you are missing out. Consider writing a complete list of church functions and seeing just how many you can move from the building into the small groups. Pastoral care, visitation, communion, baptism, taking care of physical needs, Bible study, prayer, you name it, you can move it from the fourth place into the first place, the home. As you do, your medium begins to speak of holistic worship. B, their thing in our place. What if instead of paying money for an associate pastor to teach classes, you hired someone to turn some of your usable space into a co-working business? What if instead of hiring a youth pastor, you hired a community center director? What if instead of running a youth group of a few church kids, you let Young Life use your facility and minister to a 100 kids from the local high school? What is the best use of your resources? We are so accustomed to hiring church people to do church things that sometimes we can't think outside our fourth place box. When we begin to use our facility for organizations and purposes outside the religious zone, we affirm all of life as worship. When our staff has a mix of theological and business acumen, we start to think differently about ministry. C. Their thing, their place. Jesus entered our world. 
Jesus taught about money and farming. Jesus cared more about justice in Jerusalem than sacrifices at the temple. If we are going to move toward holistic worship, we are going to need to repent of our addiction to performance excellence and shift toward a culture of mercy. How? By decreasing dependence on the show and increasing dependence on relationship. By changing the financial model. If we can bring in money through legitimate business instead of Christian entertainment, we no longer need to feed our rampant consumerism. If we want to help people experience all of life as worship, we are going to have to limit the complexity and expense of our events. We need to get way less excited about new gear for the worship team and way more excited about caring for the people in our cities. An Uphill Battle Admittedly, moving toward holistic worship as a building-centered church is a big challenge. Yes, there are incremental steps you can take, but it will be very difficult to change your culture as far as you may want to go. As long as you meet in a large auditorium facing a stage with a giant screen, your media are designed for a certain type of church experience. They lend toward a certain type of leader. They naturally demand a certain level of performance excellence. Holy places lead to holy people, which lead to holy practices. They are all linked together. That is why I want to push you to consider a new paradigm. Do what God tells you to do, but pray. We need people to leave the fourth place behind and join a movement towards spiritual family. It will cost you something. You will not be a part of a hip church in your city anymore. You will not feel like you are part of something big and impressive. It will probably feel awkward at first. Events can feel clean and polished. Real people are messy. When I was talking to Jeff Schaefer, who leads the Uffizi Missional Order in Santa Barbara, I asked him if he misses worship services. His response, there are times that I do. But then I attend one and I honestly, it just doesn't feel like it's real anymore. I don't know how to explain it, but I feel closer to God, like I'm really worshiping, when I'm serving food to my friends without homes in Pershing Park. What about you? Are you willing to trade something neat and polished and expensive for something dirty but real? Are you okay with leaders that don't have all the answers because they've stopped pretending? Will you be okay when it starts to grate on you that performance standards have dropped? Will you be content knowing that we are giving money away instead of upgrading our gear? Will you judge your leaders for their lack of professionalism? Are you going to be okay interacting with annoying people you don't always like? Sometimes it's nice to be alone in a crowd. I don't want to make this transition sound more glorious than it is. Honestly, Constantine's church looks a lot more impressive and fun on the outside than Jesus' church. There is a cost to giving up the fourth place. Are you ready for that? Preaching in context. Some of you feel ready, and nevertheless, you may still be wondering, If I let go of the fourth place, am I letting go of good preaching? Let's end this chapter with encouragement for those of you who thought I wanted to do away with the Word of God. In chapter 9, I mentioned the Starbucks training methodology, 70% on-the-job training, 20% mentoring, and 10% content. We don't have hard data on the exact percentages, but this sounds pretty similar to Jesus and his followers. Most of their time was spent in real life together on the road, at meals, caring for hurting people. This is the 70%. It is Jesus' discipleship immersion experience, Jesus' on-the-job training. However, Jesus didn't let them go through their immersion alone. 
He talked with them. He debriefed with them. He challenged them. This is the 20% mentoring component. Finally, yes, Jesus spoke. He spoke to crowds. He was known as rabbi, teacher. Some of his teaching came one-on-one, some in small groups, and some to the multitudes. This is the 10% content. Our churches have these ratios backwards. Our primary activity is sermons. The pastor spends the bulk of his or her week preparing content. We don't have time for mentoring and one-on-one discipleship, and we don't even have a clue what on-the-job training would even look like other than showing people how to run events. Hopefully, by this point, after hearing the stories of integrated church communities, you have a better idea of what on-the-job training means. It is the immersion the Iranian man experienced during his year living in the same home as the church planters. It is a microchurch dedicating its after-work hours to getting yet one more woman off the streets and out of the sex trade. It is a random, unplanned meal with someone in the neighborhood. It is normal life together in culture. That is our primary way to grow. That is the 70%. That is immersion. We have also talked about the 20%, a new model of leadership that allows pastors to be more like coaches and spiritual directors than wedding planners. Now I want to address the 10%, the content. Jesus taught, Paul taught, Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word. When you are on mission with people, when you are sharing life, a timely sermon is like a drink of cold water in the desert. You thirst for it. It feeds the soul. When you have deeply loving and committed relationships, you can take that word and process it together. When 90% is real life together, you hunger for the 10%. I have argued that the church in the West is like a family that gave up all of the normalness of family life in exchange for running weddings every weekend. True, but weddings still have their place. When families are close, when they care deeply about each other in normal life, There is nothing more beautiful than a wedding. When we are experiencing the substance of real family, it actually makes sense from time to time to get dressed up, hire a professional orator, have Uncle Larry sing a solo, and get some volunteers to help with parking. It is the same with church. When we are truly a spiritual family on mission together, a timely event can ignite a fire in our community. Young Life takes its kids away to camp once a year. Tampa Underground runs a leadership summit annually to speak into the lives of their leaders. Communitas has global summits, regional gatherings, and ongoing learning opportunities within hubs and church networks. Trained people run these events, people with deep theological backgrounds and real seminary degrees. Sometimes we need to get outside the boundaries of our small spiritual family. Sometimes we need a good conference. Sometimes we need a retreat. Sometimes we need a whole weekend dedicated to understanding a book of the Bible at a deeper level. There is a place in these contexts for excellent preaching and teaching. There is a place for long hours of preparation for a talk. Yes, there may even be a place for a great worship band. These are not our weekly rhythms, however. These are special events. These are the weddings. How often should we throw these types of events? As often as it is helpful. As often as it builds people toward being better disciples within their spiritual families, without the events taking the place of their spiritual families, there is no easy answer here. We should be gracious with the efforts of any community that is honestly trying to figure this balance out of their network. To move forward as a church who connects with God and others in all spheres of life, we must continually ask ourselves the question, 
Are we investing our time and energy running events and building our own kingdoms, or are we giving our lives away in radical mercy to God's beloved garden? We are all worshipers. Let's make sure we are worshiping outside the camp with Christ, not at the altar of the fourth place. Closing Arguments Friends, we are living through a radical paradigm shift in ministry. We have talked at length now about moving toward integration instead of separation. While you may be excited about all the new possibilities and ideas that may be opening up for you, I want to leave you with a few words of optimistic caution. We should not expect everyone to adopt the new, older paradigm right away. Instead, we should expect most of our communities to still be deeply rooted in their traditions. Even many of the people who are trying new structures of church still have a deep longing for large corporate worship. They miss it. It feels wrong to them not to attend services and listen to sermons every week. Why? Because they've done it their whole life. This is no different from the days of John Calvin when former Catholics moved forward under Protestantism, but did so with optimistic yet heavy hearts. Calvin was continually frustrated with large numbers of people who would mumble in Latin during his sermons. We think a cell phone going off is bad. Why were they doing it? They didn't even understand Latin, yet it still felt comfortable because they grew up with it, and they missed it. Traditions, even bad ones, are not easily broken. Alan Hirsch compares changes of medium to learning to drive on the other side of the road. It is scary at first, uncomfortable, unsettling. Still, if that's the lane you need to be in to avoid oncoming traffic, it will start to settle in. I pray the same thing for the church that we can eventually settle into some forms that keep us from the constant collision with ourselves. Some of you may read this book and feel deeply called of God to burst the fourth place wineskin and move forward with boldness in a network of spiritual families. Others, God may call to move slower, to take more pastoral care of their existing congregations without quickly alienating people that God loves. Some of you with existing buildings may feel obligated, even called, to sell them and invest your lives in a relational network. You should not expect this transition to be easy nor intuitive for those who join with you. On the contrary, we should expect change of this nature to rub against everything people have been raised to think is normal behavior of good Christians. Be optimistic, but be aware. There is room in the body of Christ for slow change, for pastoral care, love, and patience. There is also room for taking risks for boldness, for a new season of church. This is also love. I want to encourage you as I close to take a step. Ask God what that step might be. Take the time needed to listen to the Father. Process this book in community with people you trust. We have a big problem in the church, probably bigger than we realize. Our forms are not in line with our function. Our media are speaking a message of separation, while the great gospel of our Lord Jesus is bursting at the seams to speak its own message of radical integration. When Jesus came to earth, he left his own place and entered our world. It's time that we followed him there. It's time to get out of the fourth place.